0: If you would, please turn to Luke chapter 7, back to the passage we read earlier. It's passages like these that you really love and look forward to as a pastor. And I would ask anyone here feeling a calling to ministry, a yearning in your heart that could be uh, in a pastoral sense or other ministry sense to um, pay close attention, be thinking of yourself as uh, we progress through this, not so much the professional preacher that we always think of, though that is in view. Um, In Luke chapter 7 here, it's the same passage as I said that we read earlier, so I won't read it aloud again. Um, But this is a real life lesson, folks. Real life lesson on preaching, so I've titled this A Parable of Preaching. Now this isn't one of those parables that would be listed in Jesus' list of parables, because his parables are usually said to be uh, an earthly illustration of a spiritual reality. But this here in in, in our story is an earthly illustration of an earthly reality. In my estimation, everyone who sets their mind to preaching, to the gospel ministry, uh, and, and to be faithful to preaching God's word... Uh, They will, to some extent, experience what we see in this passage, the story told by Jesus. You know, folks, sometimes we forget that John the Baptist was a real man. He was a real man. He was a preacher of his day. In some ways, he is much the same as we see in pulpits today. The primary difference is that John received part of his revelation uh, directly from God, his divine revelation as a prophet, and he got part of his revelation from the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Old Testament. So he was a genuine prophet. He received divine revelation. He spoke on behalf of God, spoke the words of God, therefore he prophesied. That's what prophesying means, to speak on behalf of God. Honest preachers today, however, are comparatively... We heed Revelation chapter 22, which provides a strong prohibition against adding anything to God's words. Proverbs 30 verse 6 strictly warns, Do not add to His words, or He will reprove you. You will be proved a liar. So preachers today are called to to preach and to speak from what God has revealed in His holy word. Beyond that, We preach similarly to John the Baptist, similarly to John, and we get very similar reactions to those observed here in verses 24 to 35, similar reactions to John, the nature of God's word never changes folks, it is divine, it is holy, and human nature responds predictably. We respond predictably over and over and over again. It doesn't matter what generation you're in. Fallen humanity is the same as it's ever been. We're not improving in that respect. So if you're called to be a pastor, or God calls you to be a pastor, or to preach in some capacity, perhaps be a missionary, you're going to want to give special attention. This is a response to God's Word. And it's a story concerning you, and it's a story of what you can expect to encounter. You know, if you recall last time, uh, right before Easter, as we last left this passage, or Luke chapter 7, before the holiday, John's disciples had been dispatched by him. The disciples had been sent to Jesus uh, to ask him a question. John wanted an answer. Are you the expected one, remember? And he wanted confirmation, and it appears as though John's men uh, questioned Jesus publicly meaning before these crowds that we see in this passage gathered, especially in in verse 21. And we already know Jesus responded affirmatively from our last study, uh, giving many evidences as to that he is truly uh, the one, and then he sent John's disciples away. That dialogue, however, provided this occasion. This is an opportunity now for Jesus to speak to these crowds before him, And affirm that ministry of John. So in verse 24. When the messengers of John had left. Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? You know people. They traveled deep into the wilderness. In order to to see and hear John. They traveled a long way into the barren wilderness, the desert wilderness, to hear his preaching. Why do you think that is? Was it because when they'd get there out by the Jordan River or to hear him preaching out in the desert that they'd, that they'd get to hear some kind of, you know, like a vacillating type character? Some who, someone who, you know, maybe we can believe this or maybe we can believe that or there's many ways to understand this or that. Is that what they went out to see? No. And when resistance to his preaching came, the firm preaching of John, and it did. He got strong resistance. Did John tremble like a reed, blowing in the wind? Did he waver in the wind? answer is no. No, John John didn't shiver. John didn't shake in the wind, didn't shake in the breeze. Uh, he didn't kowtow to religious uh, legalists of the day, he, he called the Pharisees out for exactly what they were. A brood of vipers, right? A brood of vipers. They were, they were the offspring of Satan, is what he was saying. So observation number one, the type of people who had a yearning to hear John preach, a strong desire to hear the preaching of John the Baptist, they weren't attracted to his spinelessness. That, that's not what caused them to go out into the wilderness. Now, it doesn't mean that other people aren't attracted uh, to, to a spineless message, to a wavering message, uh, or to indecisive type speakers. Surely, large numbers of people will be attracted to that type of preaching, and crowds will draw near. You know, Israel tried that repeatedly with the prophets, or tried to impose that on the prophets. You've got Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and Isaiah. And Isaiah writes this in in chapter 30, verse 10. Uh, They were saying to the prophets, this is Israel now, Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. That was the heart of Israel. They wanted to be deceived because they didn't want to hear the truth. Sinful, Sinful humanity loves that type of preaching. Unregenerate humanity loves that. Um, But Jesus commends John in the fact that he didn't stray to the left and he didn't stray to the right of God's Word. Jesus commends him uh, uh, for his strength and his firmness in the truth. You know, I'll admit, sometimes us preachers, maybe we ought to apologize for the way that we say something. But we should never apologize for what God has said. Numerous surveys, folks, as you go on to... Uh, online and look through sur- surveys, there are numerous ones that, that suggest and insist that, that genuine young Christians, Christians who are uh, in the younger generations, maybe up till 40, depending upon the survey, they want to be told the truth. They're looking for some place where they can hear the truth of God's word, the clear implications of it. They don't want it dressed up. They just want to be told what does God's word say, and that permits them to strive to adjust their word to God or their lives to God's word. Excuse me, they they want to be pleasing to God. They want to be told what God has said. It's much like we saw in Luke chapter three uh, a while back. You had the tax collectors. What shall we do? They asked John the Baptist, and, and he said, "Don't don't collect money uh, that, that you shouldn't." You know, then there were the soldiers. You know, well, well then what should we do? He said, don't coerce people. Don't don't uh, make false charges against people. So these were the type of people that were drawn to John the Baptist, those who really wanted to know what they should do and how they should do it, and what God's word has to say about it. Then we see in, in verse twenty five, Jesus asks another question. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? (laughs) Obviously no. No, you don't go out to the wilderness to see that. Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury, they're found in royal palaces. You don't go out to a desert to see that. Uh, Splendidly clothed people don't live in the wilderness. And people who are genuinely seeking God, they don't travel to see a a soft-clothed, sweet-talking huckster. That's not what they're wanting to see. They didn't go out to see that. And then one more time again in verse 26, Jesus says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, Jesus says, a prophet. People will, folks, people will go out of their way. They they will go um, far and wide to find someone who will speak the word of God. That's what John the Baptist was doing as a prophet. Um, People want to find a man. Those who are being called by God's Spirit, they want someone who speaks the words of God. They don't want a story. They don't want illusions. They They don't want sweet talk to make them feel good in their sin. They want to hear a prophet. And Jesus affirms, yes. And I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet... This is the one about whom it is written behold I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you I say to you says Jesus among those born of women there is none greater than John yet he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he of the old testament or old covenant prophets in the old testament John was the greatest Folks, why why was he the greatest? Because his message was the greatest. His was a message uh, of the arriving Christ, the, the first advent of the Messiah coming. He had the greatest message. It was a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was a solid message. And Jesus is affirming that John was the greatest among all past prophets, of all those of the Old Testament, Yet he who is least in the kingdom, now this is alluding to future kingdom. He who is least in the kingdom, he's even greater than John. What in the world is Jesus talking about? What's he saying? Consider the context here of preaching. Declaring God's Word. This is, this is what we're talking about in this entire, entire passage. Um, preachers proclaiming God's Word. Prophets preaching. Very simply, folks. John's prophetic preaching, it was the greatest of all Old Testament prophets because he proclaimed the arrival of Christ. The issue at hand is the content. The content of the preaching. Not the individual John was the greatest, not because he was a better public speaker. Not not because he was a a more um, refined humanitarian. John was the greatest. He was greater than Moses or Isaiah because of the great message that he proclaimed of Christ coming. It was the power of the message. Greatness, folks, comes in content of the message. It's not in the man. It's in the content. But although he, meaning John the Baptist, announced the arrival of Christ, John didn't envision the mystery of the gospel of Christ. He he didn't see that. Uh, Do you remember a couple weeks ago uh, when, when we examined how John was sending this question to Jesus about whether he's the expected one, John was questioning that because he was really anticipating kind of a conquering and ruling Christ to ascend to the throne of David. Do you remember? He didn't anticipate a dying Christ. He didn't see that. The Apostle Paul assures us that the mystery of Christ and his church, the inclusion of the Gentile church, that was hidden During the period of the Old Testament. Doesn't mean we can't see the picture now. Illumined by the Holy Spirit. But it was a hidden. Hidden thing back then. But folks. But now. That gospel ministry. It has been revealed to all of us. It has been revealed. The totality of the gospel. has been revealed to us. Who function under the new covenant. Under the new covenant in the kingdom of God. And today's news folks that there is a crucified and risen Christ, that's an even greater message than John the Baptist preached. Enormously greater than John the Baptist. The bottom line is, in in this age, in this new covenant age of the church that we live in, ever since the day of Pentecost, he who faithfully preaches the gospel of Christ... The truth of the Word of God concerning the redeeming Christ, He even has a greater ministry than John the Baptist, folks. Even those with, with the least abilities, the least capacities, as, as, long as they're as long as they're faithful to the Word of God and that message, the ministry is greater. Because the message is that much greater. It's not, not that we're a better public speaker. It's not that we're, we're such a, a more faithful humanitarian than John. It's probably not that most of our lives are more pure or more, uh, more refined uh, concerning sin and, and uh, that of John. It's not because of our magnetic personalities. It's not our charm. It's not our good looks, folks. If you are called to preach the gospel even in the least of capacities, the ministry is that much greater. Because the Christ that we proclaim as risen, that message is so immensely great. It is the message through which Christ builds His church. It's the message through which uh, Holy Spirit regeneration occurs. The message of the gospel. The message of the redeeming Christ. You can be the least eloquent speaker in the most remote part of the world. You could be a missionary somewhere overseas. But if you're faithful to that message, no matter how tiny the audience, no matter how remote you are, uh, if, you're, if you're faithful, those who hear that message of the old rugged cross, the truth about Calvary and the suffering of Christ for our sins... When that's preached, folks, that is a greater ministry. Greater ministry than ever seen in the Old Testament. What a charge. The gospel is that great, folks. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Folks, that is amazing grace. That, that is is the truth of Christ we now see the truth what was hidden before and because the message that we that we bear in the gospel is so great the message message that we preach folks because of that the church has been raising up and sending out missionaries into the world and preachers and pastors to proclaim the message of Christ ever since Peter preached at Pentecost. We were preaching in the boldness of Peter, unshakable, so unshakable that he would have to remain a rock, steadfast, unwavering, unshakable, in the in the mystery of the gospel. And those whom Christ is drawing to Himself, those who who the Holy Spirit. is is convicting of sin and illumining in the Scriptures, they'll be drawn to that message. They'll be drawn to the truth of that message. You don't have to be that great in skill. It is the content and the truth that is contained in it. After saying that, what acknowledgement does Jesus get about John the Baptist from this crowd? Well, as with every crowd... You always have a a mixed reaction. In verse 29, we got what I would call the Amen corner. Amen? The Amen corner, verse 29, it says, When all the people and the tax collectors, these are the sinners, folks. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, oh, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They acknowledged it. These were the ones that were drawn to John who received the baptism for the repentance of sins. Um, remittance of sins. Uh, among them, we saw in chapter 3 again, the, the coercive soldiers and, and the tax collectors and, and, and the groups that had come to be baptized. Of course, we know there were some fishermen in there. People just like us. And, and there were lots there who were poor they were the outcasts of society and in verse 29 they acknowledged God's justice meaning they were glad that someone had the courage and boldness to tell them that God is a just God that God is going to punish sin that there must be repentance of sin there must be faith in what God has revealed they acknowledged that and when they heard it they're like oh that's why I got baptized by John. The righteousness of God, the justice of God that needs to be satisfied, we know later that it's satisfied at the cross. They had faith in what they knew at that point at the preaching of John for every, every generation has been saved by grace through faith. They had faith in what had been revealed to them. In contrast to that, those of faith, verse 30 describes the The skeptics, the skeptics, they were the religious elite, they were the legalists, they were the spiritually proud, they didn't see themselves as sinners as as the tax collectors and, and the others did. No, they viewed everybody else as sinners, so they rejected the baptism of repentance. What would I need to repent of? Was their view. Why would I need to go and, and, and receive the baptism for repentance? Verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose. They rejected God for for themselves, having not been baptized by John. They were not recipients of grace, folks. They refused. They said, we don't want it. That's the natural unregenerate state. We don't need that. We don't want it. The latter group we're talking about, including Pharisees and lawyers, they're the type that strive to make ministry difficult or intolerable. is isn't that they aren't religious. They're, they're devoutly religious. They're really religious. But they don't know God's grace that's the problem they don't know God's grace they didn't understand God's grace they were not recipients of God's grace their only affinity to God's word was that it provided them a platform it was a platform not to love their fellow man or, 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 or to, to care for them but it was to, to put the fellow man the, the word of God was a platform to put their fellow man and woman under their rules and regulations they use the word of god for their own purposes their traditions and we've previously talked at length about that earlier in this book so we don't need to delve deeply into that if you've recently joined us as an example the pharisees they loved the sabbath law they loved the sabbath law it wasn't because the sabbath provided a day of rest it wasn't because it provided an opportunity to to care for those who were injured or to heal like jesus did on the sabbath that, that wasn't what the Pharisees liked about the Sabbath. No, they liked it because they could add their own interpretations and enforce a whole bunch of regulations on the Sabbath law that didn't come from Scripture. That's what they liked about the, the law. Is that they could come up with all kinds of extrapolations of Scripture and add in their own uh, little add-ons there. They were the legalists. They added to God's Word. So, so they weren't really interested... In, in, in the truth contained in God's Word, the content, they liked how God's Word could be exploited to, to press others down. To press others down uh, under their extrapolations or traditions. And we'll, we'll learn in the next verses that, that they just make life next to impossible unless you will bend and join them. They make it very, very hard. Uh, you either need to have a spine made of steel or else you have to act just like them and dress just like them and, and behave just like them and worship at the same time as them and you know adopt all of their stuff. You've either got to stand firm or you've got to bend. That's, that's the only two choices you have. Um, they enforce things not found explicitly in Scripture. Instead, they take principles, the Sabbath, the Sabbath law, and they, they impose uh, extra qualifications for it with specificity. How would that look today? Um, just as a uh example, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and it talks about the body being a, a temple. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You go to that chapter and it, it talks about the reason that Paul says to them, Don't you know the the body is a temple? And the, the the reason he claims that and and tells them that is because there was sexual immorality going on, and they were having their bodies joined to a prostitute. So specifically uh, or or especially put it that way, the 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 concern that he had about the body being a temple was because of sexual immorality. He said, "Don't be joined together with sexual immorality." And today, perhaps you could go somewhere and. This is just off off my cuff, but you could probably go to Golden Corral. You could have people look at your second helping of mashed potatoes. Hey, do you need that? Don't you know your body's a temple? Extrapolating extra things. Yes, the body is a temple. We do need to care for it. But you can see how you can take a general principle that the body is a temple, what it was originally meant for, and then just extrapolate all kinds of things what you can and can't do. What you can eat, what you can drink. No, my my Bible says uh, Jesus told me that he made all foods clean. And I like them. I like them all. Where was I? Golden Corral. The question is, folks, did John need a spine of steel? Did he need the strength for the folks who were receptive to his preaching? No. No, he had to stand like an oak to endure the confrontations with the legalists. That's why he had to be unwavering. And for you who might be calling to pre- being called to preach, if, if God is working through your life, if you're young, if you, if you are um, older, I started much later in my life, whether it is in an in, in occupational type sense or in a lay, layman type sense, If you are being called to preach, folks, you're going to have to stand like an oak. You aren't going to be able to waver. In Luke chapter 10, verse 3, there's there's all kinds of um, resistance out there. When Jesus sends out the 70 to preach, He prepared them for it. He said, Go out, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs among wolves, that's what those 70 that we're going out to preach we're going to run into. You're going to have to be able to stand. Peter would eventually, as I said earlier, have to become like a rock. He'd have to be immovable in the truth that God had given to the church. He'd have to stand. Those whom God's Spirit is calling to repentance and faith, folks, like the sinners and tax collectors, they're going to thank you for it. They're going to be grateful to what you've shared with them. They're they're not drawn to a reed shaking in the wind, but they will go out of their way to hear the truth. They'll go far into the desert just to find someone who is preaching the Word of God, the truth. As a preacher, it comes down, in a sense, to which audience do you want to please? Which of those audiences would you prefer to please? Please. Because speaking pleasant words and prophesying illusions would, would draw a crowd. A different crowd. It might make the preacher more popular. Or it might make him feel good about himself. There's, some, there's something inherent about our nature that just, just adores that. Doesn't it? Our nature does. But the place, place for popularity as John the Baptist found out it's not in preaching. John the Baptist, Jesus... And all the apostles learned that preaching the Word of God isn't real popular. John Wycliffe, John Huss, William Tyndale, they all found out that standing firm like an oak for God's Word wasn't popular even in their day. They paid the price, they withstood the conflict and the opposition but they had to pay the price folks a misperception that we'll encounter in our day comes from radio broadcasting anyone here saved through radio broadcasting I was we love that radio broadcasting but we do get removed from the crowd we get isolated to ourselves you and I hear our favorite preachers and we say we love them I've said it myself Oh, I just, I just love that preacher are such perfect men. Everybody in their congreg- congregation must just love them as well. They're so lucky. Everybody must adore them. But consider Al Mohler, Chuck Swindoll, Alistair Begg, many others. The fact is, folks, we don't even know them. We, we don't know their personalities. We, we don't know what they go through. We don't know their churches. What we are drawn to in them is their faithfulness to the preaching. That's what we hear on the radio. The Spirit draws us to that. We, we have no idea how they behave at home or, or in their congregations. We love the preaching of God's word and they're faithful in that. But some of them even, when when they open up candidly, if you get into a a workshop or or even in seminary where some of those like Chuck Swindoll will open up about some of the things that have been done to them, even by their own church members within the church, because there's always a mixed audience, it will shock you. It will shock you. They've had to stand firm for the gospel. And if you are called to preach like John the Baptist or Alistair Begg, I, I hope there are many here, folks. I hope there are many here. You'll encounter resistance. That will happen. If you want to maintain fidelity to God's word, you're going to have to stand unwavering. Not like a reed, but like a rock. And Jesus offers a little story here quickly, or I call it a parable to explain the resistance toward himself. And John the Baptist. In verse 31, Jesus asks, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and and what are they like? The men of his generation are pretty much like every generation. You might have already figured that out. But he's specifically referring to the self-righteous elites in, in verse 30. What are they like? That's what Jesus is asking. He provides his own answer. They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you refused to weep or you did not weep. Jesus likens the legalists of his day to to capricious children whom he can't please. Impossible to satisfy no matter what you do. In, in Jesus' day, children playing games, they'd entice one another. They would entice passers-by, people who were busy during their day, to participate in, in their charades. You might not believe this, but before Xbox and we, that children actually used to play outside, they did. They did. Throughout the generations, ring around the rosy pocket full of posies, you know, ash-shoes, shoes we all fall down, right? Historically. Historically, children have always played those types of games and, and, and they invite the mature to join in, right? Sometimes we get roped into that. We have to be roped into their childhood games or they'll pout, right? And the Pharisees accused John just being too harsh. Too harsh. You know, he was so serious. He was so serious. Living in the wilderness, his diet was austere. Uh, Being a Nazarite, he drank no wine, had a strict diet. The Pharisees, symbolically, they played the flute for him. John, lighten up. Lighten up a little bit. Just play along, will you? He refused to dance to their tune, uh, so they claimed he had a demon. His life was comparative to to most, or at least most of them in that day. It, it It was aesthetic. Or ascetic, excuse me. Uh, it, was, it was rugged, his life. But Pharisees exaggerated that all the more. They, they told the people, he must be crazy. Look at him, he lives in the wilderness, he preaches and screams, and look at the way he's dressed, and he, he's got a demon. It's character assassination. What they're trying to do is anyone who would go out to see him in the wilderness is to plant images in their minds before they ever see him. So, so they'll discredit him even before meeting the man. That was, that was their game. John, he's just too extreme, they would say. For Jesus, they responded completely in the opposite. In verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Jesus didn't hold to an Nazarite vow. He ate a, a typical uh, diet of his day. Bread and wine, that was the typical diet along with other things. He enjoyed, as we've seen, the banquets in his honor, right? He took part in them. So to him they sang a dirge. You know, Jesus, why don't you get more serious? You know, you're a little irreverent there. Maybe you should weep a little more, Jesus. They they implied he was irreverent, he was a glutton, he was a drunkard. Again, they exaggerated exaggerated the claims. Notice with both of these men, the critics couldn't easily impugn the message because the message was the word of God. So they tried to impugn the character or attack the character of the messenger. John's got a demon. Jesus is a drunkard. John is so rigid. Jesus is so soft. can't please him. And and if you're being called to preach and teach the word of God, would you expect any less? If that's the way that our Lord is treated. They'll either claim you're too strict, they'll claim you're too loose, you preach too long, you're boring, you preach too short, you're shallow. You can't win. Their game is that you will never be able to satisfy the legalists until you join them. Until you bend, until you waver. You join their charade, if you do that, you've already distorted God's message. You've already compromised. Uh, You must be able to endure without shaking. Folks, this is the story or a parable of all preaching. You must endure. You must stand strong. Folks, there is a sweetness. There is a sweetness to all of this. Remember, your audience is always mixed. So you're going to be heard not only by the legalists who can never be pleased, praise God, mixed in your crowd, there's going to be tax collectors and sinners. Friends of Jesus. There's going to be friends there. They're Jesus' friends. They're your friends. They acknowledge God's justice. God's righteous. We're we're sinners. They come to see preaching confident in God's word. They want to hear the wisdom of God in Sunday school. And that wisdom in verse 35, it's vindicated by all her children. The children of wisdom who are God's children... They're illumined by God's Spirit. They know God's wisdom when they hear it. The Word of God is the wisdom of God. It's through these folks that the wisdom of God and the preaching of the Word of God is being vindicated. Because people are being saved, people are are living new lives in Christ. They're new creatures. So that wisdom of God is being vindicated through the gospel. And the tax collectors and the sinners, folks, they're the reason we keep going. It's the reason preachers keep preaching. Because that's who God's calling. He didn't come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance, right? Repentant sinners are are the delight of ministry. What's more beautiful than a repentant sinner? Whether they're just receiving Christ, or whether they're coming out out of a life of sin that they had fallen back into. What is more beautiful than that? John's ministry was to them. Jesus' ministry was to them. Your ministry is to them. There's a summary to this parable it is that you can't be faithful to God's word and be a man pleaser. The church needs unwavering preachers of the gospel. Folks, there are pulpits across America that are empty. There might even be someone standing in them on Sundays, but they're empty. There's there's no content. You understand that the greatness of the message is in the content of the gospel. Be, because the idea of pleasing men has silenced them. But God is always raising up a new generation of preachers, folks. Because how will people hear without a preacher? And that's a significant. That is the significant application of this parable to us. The passage isn't merely history it isn't just some things that happened a long time ago folks this passage is crying out to be heard by you crying out to be heard by you don't miss it folks he who is the least of preachers or teachers in this new economy of the kingdom of God is greater even than John You could accept a call to preach in the smallest, most remote part of, of Tennessee. And if you're faithful to it and there's, there's people present, folks, that's a great ministry. A great ministry. If you're unwavering to God's Word in the Gospel, it's a greater ministry than John the Baptist. Folks, that's a great ministry. The Gospel message is that much greater. Greatness is... The proclaiming, the redeeming message of the blood of the Lamb who died on Calvary. That is the greatness. This passage is calling out those who would carry that banner of the gospel, would carry that truth and bear Christ's cross, his reproach and his shame. Folks, you want a great ministry? All you've got to do is preach the gospel. That's all you've got to do. Preach the gospel. That ministry will be great. If God's calling you, find that path to preaching, if you're being called to preaching. What's that path look like? Preparation. There, there's, there's places out there that need preachers. Gerald and I have been discussing this recently. If God's calling you, I'm going to say, uh, for lack of time, is it, it's time to prepare. It's time to prepare for preaching. It's not a quick and easy path. It's a challenging path, but we would like to guide you into it. This is an application for all preachers. Folks, we ought to be able to raise up some preachers here. We have been, but we ought to have some some preachers going out. How does the application of this passage then translate to the rest of us uh, in in church? Maybe for those who aren't called to preach On a regular basis. Is there any part we can play in preaching this great, great message of the gospel? How about our missionaries? Folks, Kim Hibbert is in India right now. With a team translating the gospel message into local languages. What a ministry. What a great ministry. Proclaiming the gospel of Christ. We're part of that. Churches are part of works like that. How about youth ministry? Train up a child in, in the way you should go, right? Most people don't want to take the time. Child's, children are, well, they try our patience. Let's just put it that way. That's a difficult ministry. To encourage, to prepare the next generation to rise up with this great message. But what a great ministry! We've got lots of children's ministry here. What a great ministry ministry. What about facility? People don't think of it facility. uh, this, This happens to be one location that great message is preached. It's preached in youth group. It's preached in our Sunday schools. It's preached through vacation Bible school, Awana, the pulpit. It's preached and preached and preached. From the maintenance of the lawn to the cleaning of the bathrooms, folks. From the singers who sing to us to those great greeters who meet us every day. They're doing that because they love you And they want visitors to hear the gospel preached. What a great ministry. What an amazing ministry. Outreach, evangelism, gospel tracts. There's so many. You know one of my favorites, I've shared it before but it's been a while. What a great ministry. What a great message. The gospel is preached. You can have a great ministry just by sharing with people as you go throughout your day. What an amazing ministry of the gospel. That can be even greater than John. You don't even have to go out in the desert to do it. Oh, folks, there's so many. Can you see why as a pastor, when I started, I love this passage. I love this passage. Everyone can have a hand in the proclamation of the greatest message the world has ever heard. Amen. That's wonderful. Folks, We have such a wonderful message to preach. Why would you waver? Why would you wiggle? Why would you shake? All we have to do is stand firm in what we know and preach what we've been told, the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Friend, Lord, as we uh, ponder this passage and And think about how difficult it must have been for John. And Lord, how how gravely difficult it was for you, especially as you went up to bear our sin on the cross. And yet, Lord, you've raised up preachers ever since. Lord, uh, since the day of Pentecost, when the apostles first, Lord, uh, were founding the church. And Lord, uh, uh, with a great message, that redeems souls. The precious souls that you have bought with your blood. Father, help us to be, to be, Lord, uh, precise in what our lives are here for. Why we're here, what we are to do, Lord. The message that we bear, how great it is. Lord, convict us of that. And as we go out, we pray that you're convicting tax collectors and sinners and fishermen and truck drivers and homemakers and, and uh, people everywhere, Lord, to receive the wonderful message of the cross, Lord. Help us to be faithful, to preach, to stand unwavering, to be strong for the glory of Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.